welcome to Big Law Business. I'm Josh Block. I produce videos and podcasts for Big Law Business. In case you're joining us for the first time, this is the podcast where typically Casey Sullivan and I discuss the most notable recent business of law stories. But today we have something different for you. For this episode, we were joined by Peter Latman, who until last week was the New York Times deputy business editor. Rather than talking about the biggest recent stories about the largest U.S. law firms, we talked with Peter about his time covering the business of law. We recorded this episode on March 31st, so sort of a different episode for you today. We hope you like it. And it is, of course, sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. Now, our interview with Peter Lapman. So we should say that after we invited you here, but before we recorded this, there was a bit of news about you. Oh, right. Yeah. That's <laughs> you why left, I'm you, based you, on last yeah, week's right. meeting. <laughs> yeah. So you left the New York Times to join Emerson Collective. And uh, by the time people hear this, by the time I finish editing it, you'll probably already will have started. That's correct. Tell April us, 1st. Tell us about the, uh, about the job and about the decision. So after six years at the New York Times, uh, I left the newspaper and I'm about to join an organization called Emerson Collective, which is an organization, and I keep saying organization, I'll get to why in a minute, which is started and led by Lorreen Powell Jobs, who uh, is Steve Jobs' widow. And people in certain areas might know Emerson because they're already significant players in in the education reform movement, uh, specifically school choice movement, um, immigration reform, kind of like New York Times issues down the line, you know, poverty, inequality, climate, sustainability, gun control. And I am joining Emerson um, as its managing director of media, very fancy title. But basically what that means is I'm going to be overseeing Lorene and Emerson's support and investment in journalism and more broadly the media. She also, like many of us do, believe that a free press is vital to a democracy democracy and with the various challenges in our business uh, there's fewer reporters out there and there's a real opportunity to invest and support in journalism if you believe that we need strong journalism in the United States to uh, to hold institutions accountable etc that decision to leave the New York Times a lot of the people that wrote about it said you were looked at as someone who could rise up pretty high so talk about that decision. That was a very hard decision. It's tough to leave the times. I had made a decision that I wasn't going to practice journalism as a craft anywhere else. That's never say never, but I really had made up my mind. There's obviously other places that are fantastic that I would consider, but I really love the New York Times and had great colleagues there. So I think the way I, I looked at it was really twofold. I mean, one, I saw this as an amazing opportunity. Lorene is fantastic and Emerson does great work and they're really only getting started. I feel like I'm joining an organization that's in the early innings of really starting to create something really important. And the media angle of it allows me to hopefully keep my hand in journalism, which is really my true passion. So there's that. And then the second reason is, um, 
and I told this to anyone that I talked to at the Times, was if this were 1996, 20 years ago, and the internet sort of was at its infancy and newspapers still had largely a monopoly over the distribution of information on a daily basis, I would probably say to my wife, you know, I'm a Timesman for the next 20 years. Like, I'm gonna stay here, I just became an editor. I'm going to work my way around the newsroom. It's a great institution. I'm going to spend the rest of my career here. And uh, that's that. But in 2016, I think given the headwinds that our business is facing and everyone's uncertain about where the newspaper business is going and where it's going to be in, say, five or ten years, that I felt like building a career there, uh, I had some questions about. And I'm sure the New York Times is going to be around for a very long time, and it's too important and puts out, in my view, what's some of the best journalism in the world, that, that it you know won't stay around. But it was a personal decision for me, given my situation with my wife and three kids and all that. And then this opportunity came along and I hopped on it. That's recent past, near future. Let's take it back. You know, obviously our site's devoted to big law. After law school, you were an associate at Kramer 11. Tell us about your time in big law and why that wasn't the path. That that goes back 20 years almost to the day that I finished law school and started as a litigation associate at Kramer 11, which is still around and still uh, a thriving firm. I was in their litigation department uh, which I think is is in part uh, what they're they're known for, and I was one of I think many many young lawyers who take jobs at these big firms in New York City and elsewhere that quickly realize that they don't want to practice law for a living. Law school is a great education, and you know I don't regret having gone to law school, but the practice of law is clearly not for everyone. I mean, one thing I would always say to people when I cover the law, because I talk to lawyers all day long, that's what I did, was just what a large percentage of lawyers are unsatisfied in their careers or dissatisfied with their careers. And I realized pretty early on as a young litigation associate that this is not what I wanted to do for a living. I loved covering the law. I loved reading about the law. I loved writing about it, but practicing it was just not for me. When did the journalism itch come and how did you make that transition? I've had one of these very circuitous path careers, doing lots of different things, never by design. And I think there are a lot of people out there in the world who have a job and they never quite are passionate about it and maybe don't know what it is they want to do with their lives. I always wanted to be a journalist from the time I was, you know, in high school, I guess. I edited my high school newspaper. I've always been a news junkie. When I became a journalist, finally, in my early 30s, you know, my closest friends from high school who I grew up with said to me, you're an idiot. You should have done this 10 years ago. Like, I I didn't pursue journalism for the wrong reasons. And I had to come around to it eventually because it really was like deep down inside what I love to do. But it was one of those things where I went to law school just because it was, you know, something to do right after getting my liberal arts college degree. And then in 1998, which was like crazy, crazy bull market in the stock market, a lot of my friends from college were working on Wall Street making tons of money. In 
98, I almost went to become a reporter at Smart Money Magazine, which no longer exists, covering mutual funds. And instead, I got an offer, and then I punted on the offer. And instead, I went down the path of networking with some friends who worked on Wall Street, and they helped me get a job at Goldman Sachs. And I spent five years there before I left and said, you know what? I really do want to become a journalist this time. So that's a sort of short story about my path. I'm sure that your legal background must have helped you in your journalism career, though. You know, I mean, working at Kramer 11, they were a big firm that was actually involved in the Dewey and LaBeouf case that you covered very closely. You know, can you talk about any transferable skills or contacts that you kept to sort of speak to how your legal background influenced your career? And the way I like to answer that is I think it both helps and hurts me as a journalist, or maybe I should put that in a different tense. It, it, it helped and hurt me as a journalist. It helped in that having worked at Kramer for two years and then Goldman for five, I knew how to speak the language of these men and women who worked as lawyers and bankers. I was around them and all that stuff came naturally to me. And I think a lot of reporting is talking to people and gaining their trust and having them think that you're intelligent and trustworthy. And I just think being fluid in the way these lawyers and bankers thought about the world and spoke about the world gave me a little bit of an edge. There are non-lawyers and non-bankers out there who have been journalists and worked their way around various newsrooms and now are at the New York Times who are every bit as talented a reporter as I was and didn't have that experience. So I don't think it was a requirement, but I think that was just something I brought to the table that helped me. Where I think it hurt is um, is that what I like to say is, you know, having worked at Goldman Sachs for five years, I still have friends there. I think that generally speaking, it's a you know fantastic firm with great values and hardworking, dynamic people. And most people there are putting on their pants one leg at a time, just like we are trying to figure it out, work hard, take care of their families. So I have generally a positive view of the place. And I think that in reporting, there are other people that might look at Goldman Sachs and just come at it from the standpoint of everyone there is evil and trying to screw their clients. And every transaction that they do has to have some sketchiness to it that I need to uncover. If you come at it from that angle, I think sometimes you might actually like uncover more skullduggery than I might because I don't have that like natural instinct like, oh, everyone in Goldman Sachs is evil. So I always thought that was actually kind of a disadvantage in some ways. I'm sure it got you more access though. <laughs> yeah. You mean having worked there before? Absolutely. And, and just sort of understanding things from the inside. You'd be surprised though. Like I, you know, Sue Craig, who is a colleague of mine, Suzanne Craig is her byline, who covered Goldman Sachs for years and did an amazing job. She was better sourced inside that firm than I was and I worked there for five years. So I'm telling you, like, just because I worked there, that did not give me an edge. Like, people didn't talk to me more because I worked at Goldman Sachs. I think a little bit over 10 years ago is when Lawblog launches and you're going to be the lead blogger for it, lead writer for it. What were they trying to do? What was the goal then before it was something? The Lawblog probably the two plus years that I did that was maybe the most fulfilling two years that I had as a journalist just because. So I got got lucky. I started my first real job in journalism was at Forbes magazine. And I was there maybe about 10 months. And I had met one of the editors at the Wall Street Journal uh, named Jamie Heller, who was a lawyer herself, went to Yale Law School, clerked uh, in the Second Circuit, and then became a, a journalist. And she was part of a group at the journal that was re-staffing its legal 
team. The legal coverage area had sort of been blown up during the recession in the early 2000s, and then they were building it up again. And one of the centerpieces of this coverage was going to be this blog. The journal didn't have any blogs at the time, and sort of 05 era, blogs were all the rage. That was like the new, new, new thing, and everyone was blogging. So the journal decided it wanted to start a blog, which for the journal was very sort of innovative and, wow, should we be doing a blog? You know, it's a sort of one-voice newspaper, very conservative. But I was hired. Uh, they took a shot and hired me to be their first blogger. And it just so happened that the first blog was this Wall Street Journal law blog with the very original name of the Wall Street Journal law blog. So we didn't know what it was going to be. Uh, we were encouraged to have our own voice and cover the legal community in an interesting, innovative way that was different from how the newspaper might cover it. And we started on January 1st or so of 2006. And it was so fun. I mean, what I would do is I would wake up very early, I remember, um, like in the fives, and I'd read all the main newspapers and figure out where the most interesting legal stories were and also the trades. And then over the course of the day, I would post, you know, anywhere from a half dozen to a dozen little items about the law. And it really resonated with readers. And we developed this following of mostly big law attorneys, you know, in New York and D.C. and kind of the major legal cities that would read the blog and had comments. And it was really, um, it it turned out great because we sort of struck a nerve and, and, and it and it caught on a little bit. How much of it was sort of like original reported um, content as opposed to like, you know, spotting something in the news and then writing about it? Because that's sort of one challenge that we're facing is sort of, you know, like how many stories do we want to put out that is actually providing an original analysis and in-depth reporting? And how much do we want to put out that is sort of writing a new or funny take on um, something that has happened? Initially, a lot of it was secondary reporting and then sort of creative angles to stories that were out there. So, you know, the way I thought about it was, okay, if there's a big... You could sort of bootstrap any story into the law blog by figuring out the legal angle. So, you know, if there was a big political controversy, I might do a focus piece on the lawyer. Like, for for instance, today I saw that uh, the U.S. women's soccer team filed a lawsuit about pay inequity, and Jeffrey Kessler is representing them, right? Now, maybe this isn't the best example because everyone knows who Jeffrey Kessler is, but if I was writing the law blog at the time, I might say, oh, the women's soccer team filed this lawsuit, and look who's representing them, the ubiquitous Jeffrey Kessler. And I would do like a mini instant profile on him. You know, so I'd always take like the legal angle to the story, right? I mean, if, you know, Justice Scalia died while I was doing the law blog, like that would have been, you know, full court press, all sorts of different angles about his death. And then when I would do original reporting, those would run as, you know, those would run as separate articles in the Wall Street Journal. You were doing 2,000 posts a year or over 4,000 over two years. That's what it was reported. I mean, that seems incredible. I mean, I think Casey and I looked at each other like, we got we got more posts to do today, you know? I think what it was and maybe why I said it was uh, very satisfying because I, I think I had all this pent up. I really, when I say I was passionate about being a journalist, I had all this pent up energy that like, okay, I really want to do this and I want to prove myself. So in 06 and 07, I was just, I would come in, I was very focused, I'd come in really early 
and I'd sit at my desk and I would just like jam stuff out to the point where I remember one of my bosses, Bill Gruskin, once sat me down relatively early on is like, you're doing too much. You should dial it back. You need to, one day I had like 18 different items. You know, he's like, it's just too much. So I don't know. I just, it was one of those, you know, moments where I was just especially productive. But you determined the pace. Did you have an editor pushing you or was it just, I guess, what was the process there? It was very streamlined. It was, you know, we used like WordPress or something and Ashby Jones, who was my editor, who's a really good legal journalist, he would sit next to me. I would put together the post. I'd say, Ashby, I'm done. He would edit it, put it up. It was very efficient. There wasn't a lot of hoops you had to jump through to get stuff up. So that was one of the things that probably helped. You mentioned comments too. And I think this 10 years later, it's a different world in commenting. Like it just seems like you were able to interact with the commenters, I think, right? It was almost a community. And it's like, that's, I think, of an era and that's gone. A hundred percent. So, and I think largely what has disrupted that, to use the trendy word, is um, social media, right? So commenters are now on Facebook and Twitter in their own little ecosystems, commenting and tweeting and posting on Facebook, right? So no one really blogs anymore, and you don't have these mini communities, best I could tell. I don't know. They don't really exist at the times. I mean, we have curated comments, and our commenters are a big part of the times. Uh, And I think our commenters are some of our most loyal subscribers, apparently. But yeah, that was a moment in time when I think I created or helped create something at the law blog where there was like this critical mass of big law lawyers who would check it, you know, multiple times a day. And they loved commenting on it. And it became this virtuous circle where I would get a lot of ideas from these people. You know, they would come at me with various things. They would send me articles from all over the country. And I would take the ones that were interesting and, you know, use them and write them up as blog posts. Uh, Can you think of like a favorite post or favorite story that you worked on? I wish I could remember the name of the firm, but I once wrote, it still makes me laugh. There was this law firm I found in Pennsylvania, and it was four partners or five partners all with the same name. And I can't, I I, I wish I could remember this post. So it was like McEwen, 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 and McEwen was the name of the law firm. And I somehow randomly happened upon them, and they were all like... It was the father, and then there was the son, and the wife, and the sister-in-law, and they were just this like little law firm in Pennsylvania. And I interviewed them, and they had this like really lovely practice in a small town, I think in Western PA. And it was stuff like that, and people went crazy for that. They loved it. You know, it's like all those quirky things about the law that I really enjoyed, and I think other people did too. Yeah, I remember the bow tie club that you had. I love that. Oh yeah. That was like really awesome. So I did the bow tie club and then I did the mustache society. (laughs) So we just got this idea that mustaches and bow ties are inherently funny. And, you know, at the time this was like innovative to like get a collage together of all these faces and put them all in a page. Another thing that was new about the law blog was that you started referencing other journalists, um, you know, in the trade press and other publications. I mean, how was that received at the journal at the time? I mean, you see that pretty frequently in a number of different publications today. Some people don't like doing it because it's sort of relying on another organization's reporting and you don't necessarily know the accuracy 
all the time. We read about you know how that was new at, at the journal when, yeah, when you came on. That was. So I was careful about how I did it. I mean, I do think there's sort of less of that today. But at the time, with blogging so popular, I think there was a little bit of leeway that people were given in how they executed that stuff. So I was just always very careful, even if it resulted in, in artful writing, to say, you know, the Washington Post reported this. Uh, they said this, according to the Washington Post. And they also said that, said the Post. So I'd always make sure that the attribution was there instead of doing the original reporting. And that's one of the reasons why I was able to generate a lot more stuff, because I didn't have to make calls a lot on a lot of occasions. You know, after two years when you hung it up at, at Law Blog, right, I think during those couple of years, a bunch of legal blogs started. And I think they sort of viewed you as, as a brother or something, because you do a search and you'll find all these people that were kind of, oh, Peter Latman's leaving Law Blog. One of the bloggers posted about it, and he wrote, what was amazing was Latman's posts were themselves snarky and sarcastic and often dealt with subjects far below the level of crucial earthly importance that characterized the journal itself. He was funny. The Wall Street Journal, not so funny. This was one weird match. Under Latman, the Wall Street Journal blog became a model for a successful, relevant, and enjoyable corporate blog. That's really nice. I mean, that was the most gratifying thing about it is that I didn't take myself too seriously and I didn't take the law too seriously. And as you guys know, a lot of lawyers take themselves very seriously. But it was really nice to hear when very senior partners doing hugely sophisticated deals and litigations told me that they read the blog on a regular basis. And I mean, the best compliment, and I'm sort of forgetting exactly the facts, but I remember finding out that uh, Justice Alito read the blog, which was like, I couldn't believe it. Uh, so that was a career highlight. But, you know, then David Latt's blog came not so long after we started. And I think, and David would say this, that his blog was in part inspired by the law blog and, you know, took snarkiness to a whole new level. But David also is a, you know, ridiculously talented journalist and reporter and writer, um, as you saw with like the Dewey and LaBeouf coverage. Um, you know, he's a he's a really rare talent and did some great things with the, uh, you know, above the law blog. Even, even though, you know, it does have that snarky angle that some lawyers uh, scoff at. But everyone reads it. Oh, absolutely. One thing that I was also going to ask about is sort of, you know, your voice was something that clearly uh, made you prolific. And we've seen in the media today sort of this uh, blend between voice and news. You know, on the one hand, you sort of want to be independent as a journalist, but also sort of have your own distinctive brand at the same time. How do you see that playing out in the media? And do you see that being a problem at all? I do in, in part because a lot of these institutions are wrestling with that question because, you know, it used to be that the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, as I mentioned before, you know, really had, they dominated the distribution of information and they could sort of rule how journalists and editors, you know, acted. And it was all through the funnel of this publication. But now with Twitter and Facebook and social media, journalists can get out there and be their own brands. And Brian Stelter, who's a former colleague and does a great job on CNN, you know, he has half a million Twitter followers and can just be his own megaphone, right? Go straight to his readers. And I don't know if you've read it, but the New York Times recently has been wrestling with introducing the first person more into its articles because I think the editors realize that the way in which people read information and consume it, there's more of sort of a casual approach to how people take in news. So that sort of more formal New York Times journalism that they've they were 
were really strict about until recently, you're starting to see cracks in that you know philosophy. And I think it's by necessity because journalists are starting to exercise their own you know personas in an effective way. And in the legal space, we've also seen more law firms actually getting into this sort of content creation business. You know, we've seen law firms sort of launch their own uh, self-proclaimed news feeds. And I'd be interested in sort of getting your thoughts on how you see that affecting the legal media in particular. When I was at the Times and was helping oversee our media coverage, you know, I actually thought that was a great story, which is how companies, which also include law firms, are just generating their own media. I mean, they, you know, Goldman Sachs has a weekly podcast that is downloaded hundreds of thousands of times a week. You know, 3M, a big Fortune 500 company, has like former reporters on staff that are generating content. You can go to 3M's website and there's all these articles that 3M employees who are former reporters at the Milwaukee Journal Center, various places are working for 3M writing stories. And so it's natural that law firms, you know, would be doing the same thing. That gets back to the old issue that I raised earlier that I think Emerson and I, you know, will be thinking about, which is distribution. Well, like, so some big law firm might write an article But if it's just read sort of internally by the several hundred lawyers there, maybe distributed to their clients, like how effective is that and how much reach and ultimately how many how much resources are you going to pour into that effort? So I think everyone's trying it because they can. It's so easy. But I think there'll be a shakeout. Like, I just don't think all of this information is is sort of sustainable as a a business model. Tell us about the move then to The New York Times. Part of it was to cover big law again. Yeah, I'd spent five years at The Journal and I'd gone to know a number of people at the Times. I was recruited there by Larry Ingracia, the former business editor who's now at the LA Times, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, who uh, is still the deal book columnist and a close friend. And I love the journal and I loved working there and I still have some great friends there. But truthfully, I think to me, the Times was the pinnacle when I had decided to become a journalist uh, and people would say, oh, what do you want to do? Ultimately, I'd say, oh, I want to write stories on the front page of the New York Times. Like that was sort of a goal in my mind. I grew up out on Long Island. I'd get the New York Times on my kitchen table every morning. So that's what I wanted to do. So I took the job and yeah, my beat ended up being two different things. I focused on financial crime, mostly white collar crime. And I got lucky because there was this fantastic, you know, insider trading scandal that unfolded while I was there and also the law. And that was really fun. And I, I still think, and I say this to my former colleagues at the Times, that we undercover the law, that there's a greater percentage of lawyers that read the New York Times, I'd say, probably more than any other profession. That is to say, a greater percentage of lawyers read the New York Times than any other percentage of any other type of job read the New York Times. So stories about the law and big law and law schools are just like catnip for New York Times readers. So it was great covering it for the paper. And then, of course, uh, as Casey knows, we had this great Dewey and LaBeouf collapse, which was you know probably one of the best legal stories, if not business stories, of the past decade. I feel like when that happened, everyone was like, oh, business of law coverage is really hot and sexy and we want to beef up our business of law coverage. And then afterwards, it was like, you know, you have these big law firm merger discussions here and there. But, you know, it's really just a few times a year where you'll you'll have this big story that would play well in the Times or, you know, the Journal or in Bloomberg or Reuters. Do you still follow the business of law? And like, if so, are there any big stories that really interest you right now or any, any big issues that you feel like deserve coverage? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, I do have a soft spot in my heart 
part for big law coverage and big law stories. You know, I saw those headlines the other day about the hacking of Cravath and, and Weil, and frankly, my eyes glazed over. I didn't find it that interesting. You know, I saw there was a great altercation that a former that a former colleague at the Times, David McCraw, our general counsel, had with Brad Karp over the NFL, Brad Karp, managing partner of Paul Weiss. That was really fun. So I guess the short answer is I agree with you. Like right now, there really isn't any sexy big law stories that I'm closely following. I've always been intrigued by, you know, these these uh, mega firms. What do they call them? The Swiss name Verines? Swiss Verine, yeah. Yeah, which is so and, random. And you, and you covered, I think, a few years ago that huge billing controversy at DLA Piper. Yeah, so that was like a top 10 story I've ever written, and it was really just dumb luck. You know, fell into my lap in terms of a source tipping me off to this lawsuit. And, you know, you get calls all the time about lawsuits, and most of them are completely uh, not worth uh, your time and certainly not worth a New York Times story. But someone said, oh, you should really look at this lawsuit. And they started to explain what it was. And then they read the money quote from the DLA lawyers about, you know, let's churn that bill, baby, or whatever uh, it was. And uh, I fell off my chair. I couldn't, I couldn't believe the good fortune. So I knew that that was going to be a great story. And it was kind of a one-off, right? I mean, there wasn't much legs to the story the way there is like with the Bernie Madoff scandal, but it was a great front page one-off story that got tons of attention. In general terms, what's the bar? And when I say what's the bar, what's the bar for the New York Times? If you could draw the line somewhere and say, this is what's going to get covered for a big law firm to get covered. What is that sort of? Well, it's a great question. I think I think an effective way to cover big law at the New York Times, and I'm not working there anymore, so I don't have any say, but I do think, you guys are probably too young to remember this, but there used to be a column, I believe it was called At the Bar, that a guy named David Margulik wrote, and he's a very accomplished journalist, and kind of like Adam Liptak's Monday sidebar column, which is really about the Supreme Court. This was a column about the law. And I'd say uh, not every column, but there were a lot of columns that involved big law firms and the goings on in corporate law. And I think a weekly column that, again, we have so many lawyers as readers that they would all read this column if you had the right person writing it. I think that would be a really effective way to cover the law. And then occasionally, as you said, there would be some big law story that would merit its own byline, like the Dewey and LaBeouf case. One, one story that we covered recently was of that former DLA Piper partner who's suing uh, DLA Piper's outside counsel for turning over those documents. And I didn't write about it in the story that, that we ended up publishing, but he mentioned you in the complaints, like sort of going in depth about you know, like how you broke it and everything. And it seemed like I mean, have, have you been in touch with him at all, or, or do you have any insight in that? No, I don't. And I was I was so surprised to read that lawsuit. And look, as a reporter, you know that when you see a lawsuit like this and discovery surfaces emails like that, you know that those emails and the story is going to have real world consequences. And, you know, if you're a human being, even if you're a reporter, you feel badly and some empathy for the people who wrote these emails because, again, that's like having been a lawyer or just having been out in the world. I mean, any company, right? You're, you're always joking around with your friends on email and text message, right? So who knows whether those were jokes or many a truth is said in jest or they were, you know, being sarcastic, but you knew it wasn't going to look good, right? And my job as a reporter is not to 
decide, you know, what the true intentions were behind those emails. It's to report on the fact that this lawsuit surfaced these emails that said some stuff that really doesn't make DLA Piper look very good or the lawyers on those emails. Um, and I reported it. And, you know, my job was to make sure that all those people knew or I did my very best to let those people know that the article was coming. And the, I feel like the business of law beat just generally is a really sensitive one. You know, you're dealing with information that hasn't or they're not ready to announce yet. And how do you approach those situations or how did you approach those situations? I mean, there's sort of a, an element of empathy, like you said, and sort of wanting to work with the firm to sort of release the news at a, an appropriate time. Um, and on the other hand, you want to be the first to break the news. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, and I, I would get kicks out of, I mean, it wasn't my job to work with the law firms. That's the way I always viewed it. But I would get kicks out of even, you know, personnel announcements, which are, you know, not huge stories, but they actually get well read because people like to read about other people and revolving door and personnel moves, I think are, are, I always had fun writing about those. And I remember once covering Jamie Sprayragan, who's a top bankruptcy lawyer at Kirkland, I believe. And I broke that he was leaving Kirkland for Goldman Sachs, I think. And then he, he went to Goldman and then he came back to Kirkland, if I remember it correctly. I remember getting a tip that he was going to Goldman and calling him and saying, I'm reporting that you're going to Goldman. And he said, how the hell do you know that? I haven't even told my partners yet. It's so like, that's like, you know, for a reporter, that's really a great feeling. Yeah. Um, so that stuff was always fun. And it, that's part of the job, right? Is like getting ahead of the law firms. So tell us about that. What kinds of people were you getting to talk to you? You know, I always, it's sort of traditional reporting, just being on the phone all the time, building relationships and getting people to trust you. It's funny. I always thought that the best sources invariably were if you had sources in the legal community that would help you with stuff and you got to know them, oftentimes they were either former journalists themselves or were like editors on their college newspaper or editor-in-chiefs of their high school newspaper. There are people that had like the journalist bug, but somehow ended up as, you know, a partner at Cleary Gottlieb or whatever law firm and just like couldn't help themselves because they loved the journalism game. And I always found those people to be the best sources. And you would just like try and cultivate people like that. And then there's other people who despise journalists and those people were terrible sources. If you were going to advise law firms about communicating with the media, what would you say to law firms about what they're doing right, what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing, how to approach someone like what you were or what you did? I've always found that the most effective public relations strategy is to engage with the journalists. And maybe I'm biased because I was a journalist, but I really have found, I think even a better example is when I covered private equity for a couple of years at the journal. I covered private equity at a time when they were private in the true sense of the word. Now a few of these firms are public, so they've totally changed their communication strategy, but they were always leaning toward never talking to the press. There were different theories about how to engage with the press in the private equity world. And you had Blackstone, which had a, had a theory of let's engage with the press. They have a job to do, we have a job to do. If we tell them about what we're doing and build relationships with the media, with our partners at the firm, I think that will inure to everyone's benefit. And then there were other private equity firms like Cerberus, which if you recall, bought Chrysler you know, out of bankruptcy and was a very controversial figure during the financial crisis. They never engaged with the press and had sort of like open disdain for it. And if you look at how those two firms recovered, Blackstone by and large has gotten very good coverage. I mean, they've built a fantastic firm uh, and so is Cerberus, but Cerberus for the most part got negative coverage. And I honestly think like, 
like if these firms choose not to engage with the press, it's only going to hurt them. I mean, the press is going to do their job just as these law firms have to do their jobs. And I think, uh, you know, a dialogue is, is usually the healthier way to go. Do you have a uh, legal media diet or people you follow or newsletters you get? What are your sources of legal media? I still do pay attention to it because I genuinely like it. At the Times, of course, I read everything that Adam Liptak, our Supreme Court reporter, writes. And, you know, Matt Goldstein does a nice job at the Times covering. uh, He certainly did a great job covering the Dewey trial recently. I read David Latt, who's become a friend, and I love his stuff. So, yeah, and, you know, I, like a lot of people, get my news from Twitter. So I follow various people who cover the law across the different publications and kind of streams into my feed. Obviously, I've read you over the years, Casey, when you used to scoop me all the time and doing the buff. That's how we first became friends. So I still I still love reading. Um, you know, that's kind of my diet, I guess. These are all kind of general legal media questions that I had for you. You know, another one along these lines. I think the AMLA 100 has changed how law firms do business. What are your thoughts on the law firm rankings? That's been a subject that I think for a long time has kind of rankled the legal community, like these rankings. And it sort of, it really was extraordinary to me when I got to know these law firms, how much time they spent kind of cultivating relationships with the trades and trying to, you know, get their firms ranked and awarded litigation shop of the year. I mean, they put tremendous amounts of energy into this stuff. And I guess it's somewhat meaningful. Look, I do think... Like anything, there really are some, even though the M-Law 100, people might say, oh, not worth the paper it's written on. I mean, I think the firms that emerge oftentimes at the top of the heap are, you know, these great institutions. And having gotten to know them, whether it's, you know, the crevasse or the Debevoises or the Clearies, you know, the quality of people at those firms, I think on the whole, really ends up standing out. And, you know, I once wrote a story for the Times, and it was part of, I think, a deal book special section. But I looked at the firms that had um, lockstep compensation, pure lockstep compensation. And I think it was Cravath, Debevoise, and Cleary. And I caught some flack from, I think, Davis Polk and Simpson and maybe Wachtell, which also have almost pure lockstep, but maybe not quite. Anyway, they're probably going to argue me on that still. In any case, those firms that I mentioned, I can just say now that I'm not even really in the reporting game, on balance, they had some of the most high quality people that I'd met in the law. But that's not to say, you know, there's amazing people at Skadden and Kramer Levin and, you know, Cahill Gordon on down. So uh, there's lots of, you know, great talented lawyers out there. But the rankings, I think, do sometimes reflect quality. Yeah, I mean, I've heard the the argument from those firms that, you know, when you when you look at a Skadden or you look at a Latham or a huge law firm that is still in that, you know, high quality tier, that the talent is sort of scattered in, the, in different offices. It's not, you know, you have pockets of, of great lawyering. I think that's right. Uh, you know, Latham's another one, right? You know, I covered white collar crime at the Times and... It's very natural for former prosecutors to go through the revolving door and go to these defense firms and um, or corporate firms. And, you know, the best prosecutors end up at, you know, these firms, Gibson Dunn, Latham, Quinn Emanuel is another one with some fantastic lawyers. So, yeah, those are people operating in the major leagues. And there is a there is a, a quality differential, I think, oftentimes. What do you think about where big law is going? If we're on some sort of trajectory, we're seeing separation at the top. 
Do you think we're going to see more firms disappear? What do you see happening in the next five to 10 years? You know, I mentioned before, I'm really intrigued by these mega firms. I, I sort of don't understand them and how they operate. They don't really operate like traditional firms. They operate more like consulting firms almost or accounting firms, I would say. To me, I, I still hold this romantic notion of the law, you know, watching um, Garland get nominated, you know, watching his speech in the Rose Garden, like that stuff still like gets me excited. So this romantic notion of law, there's these great firms, you know, that really still view law partnerships as true partnerships and the profession as a profession and are you know, haven't entirely let go of that notion. And I think those firms will continue to thrive. You know, and then there's the small boutiques, which, you know, there are a few of them that have sprouted up. But I can tell you, like, I, I wrote a story on Bruni and Richard, which was an all-woman law firm, which was thriving a few years ago. And I wrote a very uh, positive story on them. Great lawyers there. And over the past few months, that firm has unwound a little bit. And, and some people have left and uh, they, they've restructured. Um, so it's tough. You know, it's tough out there. And business is, uh, you hear business is difficult. But then again, I remember hearing that these mid-sized firms would have to merge and get bigger or go out of business and take my old firm, Kramer Levin. It stayed, you know, it's not a mega firm. It's several hundred lawyers. And they've been fabulously successful because they have great lawyers there. I think that's ultimately what the difference is. So I have a couple that are a little bit silly. Where do you come down on the Oxford comma? And does whether it's legal writing or journalism matter? So even though I left the Times and my last day was Friday, you know, the Times does not employ the Oxford comma. So I'm a Timesman. So I'm going to go with the Oxford comma is not necessary. However, I recently read something very funny about someone saying, I'm going to Florida to visit my parents, comma, Donald Trump and Marco Rubio. And without the Oxford comma, that is obviously a problematic sentence because the person's parents are Donald Trump and Marco Rubio. So in that sense, you can make the case that it is um, important to have. But the New York Times doesn't need it, then I don't need it either. And tell us about going to the Harvard football game with George Plimpton. What was that? What happened there? Yeah, so that was one of those Forrest Gump type moments that uh, I guess I got lucky. I had met him at, is a little too much information, but my ex-wife wrote a book called New York Characters, and it was photographs and portraits of New York characters. So for instance, some people were well-known like Spike Lee and John McEnroe, kind of quintessential New Yorkers. And then there were less well-known people that might be big in say the East Village or certain neighborhoods that were true characters. George Plimpton was one of them, and I had gone to my now ex-wife's book party where a bunch of the characters went and George Plimpton was one of them and it happened to have been the week before the Harvard-Yale game. So we were making small talk at the book party and I just said to him, like, going to the Harvard-Yale game on Saturday? And he's like, no. I said, why don't you come with me and my pals? We're going. And he's, he said, okay. So we... I don't think we had email back then. And maybe I called him and I said, okay, we'll pick you up at 8.30 in the morning in front of your apartment on East 72nd Street. We showed up. He walked out with a notebook in his hand. We had no idea he was going to write anything. And he gets in the car and we start driving up to New Haven and we're talking and he's taking notes. And he's like, yeah, maybe I thought I'd get an article out of this. So, uh... Lo and behold, there and there's here Talk it of is. The town. Talk yeah, of the Town, New Yorker, awesome. and it's online for anyone to see. 
So that was our Peter Latman episode. Hope you enjoyed it. We want to thank him for joining us and wish him the best of luck with his new job at Emerson Collective. For more from us, check out our website, biglawbusiness.com. Give us feedback on the podcast there or write to us. Our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. Follow Big Law Business on Twitter at biglawbiz. Follow Casey on Twitter at Casey underscore biglaw. Follow me on Twitter at joshblocknyc. Big Law Business is a production of Bloomberg BNA's cross-platform businesses. The podcast is produced and edited by me, Casey and Gabe Friedman, write for and edit our website. Blake Edwards is our correspondent. Technical and website design is handled by Philip Ramsey and Paige Connor. Cassie Whiteside heads up commercial strategy. If you would like to become a sponsor of our podcast or our website, please email her at cwhiteside at bna.com. And Scott Mazarski oversees the whole big law business operation. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it. 